Welcome to our assemblies, especially if you're visiting with us. We're glad you're come our way, and we have uh, some that come and spend some time with us in the winter, and we're always thankful for that. I uh, hope that uh, you continue to do that. There are some in our assembly today who might get a free meal after services uh, today. Uh, today is Veterans Day, uh, November the 11th, uh, and there are a lot of e- eating establishments in the area that honor veterans by giving them a free meal. Maybe uh, if you are a veteran, maybe you'll take advantage of that. But of course, Veterans Day has to do with, uh, in, as a national holiday, the remembrance of those who have served and can, those who currently continue to serve uh, in the armed forces Uh, in an effort to protect our freedoms uh, and continue our liberties. The major hostilities of World War I formally ended on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918 when an armistice with Germany went into effect. In 1938, on the uh, the 11th of November, became an annual holiday in the United States. Uh, In 1954, at the urging of other for, uh, arms of the uh, armed forces and the veterans organizations, Armistice Day was renamed Veterans Day in 1954, and so we celebrate it today uh, on the 11th day of the 11th month. I'm not a veteran, and I know there are many of you who, uh, in our assembly today who are, uh, and I know a lot of Christians uh, who are veterans, and I appreciate and I'm always thankful for. Uh, the the, uh, service that they have provided, the sacrifice that they have made. But I also know uh, that there are devout, sincere Christians, some of them even friends of mine, who uh, could not serve in the military because of conscientious objections. and Their conscience before God would not allow them to take up a weapon. And I respect both of those folks, those who have served and those who say that they could not. And I believe that's the way God would want me to fall on that particular perspective. But I want to take a couple minutes and I want to consider what the Bible says in a metaphorical sense about the lifestyle of the soldier. And I hope that by using this metaphor I don't in any way offend someone. I hope that my focus doesn't offend by talking about soldiers today. One thing I do know is that the New Testament scriptures typify the life of the Christian as the life of a soldier on more than one occasion. That the writers of the New Testament drew from the military forces of their own day, however familiar they were with them, or however close they were with them, they used that image to talk about living before God. So I take my lead, not from social, political, or cultural trends, however you might feel about the military today, or even whether or not you served in the military. I take my lead from the Apostle Paul as he discussed the work of a soldier in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so for a few moments, if you allow me on this particular occasion to look at these passages, I want to consider the aspect of the difficult life of living as a soldier. Paul talked about that, and he says, Therefore you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in the warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. The Apostle Paul indicates here is that there was a connection in lifestyle between those who served as a soldier in the first century and that would have been an image very familiar to the people to which he's writing in the life of of himself as well as others in being a Christian. Well, what part of the life of the soldier was Paul talking about? Was it all metaphorically connected 
Was there complete parallel? And I would suggest to you that's not so. That Paul was making a connection in a specific aspect of the life of the soldier to the life of the Christian, and he was talking about when he talked about suffering. Can you imagine the dilemma of the army recruiter? He has a difficult job. The army recruiter's job, you see, is to convince young men and women to become soldiers. So if you're going to try to get somebody to become a soldier, because that's what your job is, to recruit them, what do you tell them about? What do you speak to them about? How can you sell the job? Well, it's interesting how army recruiters have done that in the past, and I suppose continue to do that. They tell young people they can come travel the world and go places they can never go before. They'll meet new people. They'll embark on an adventure of a lifetime. They'll learn new skills. You'll be all that you can be. You'll see the world. That may all be true, isn't it? But do you tell them about the pain, the suffering, the sacrifice, the difficulties, the danger, the hardship? Do you tell them that they might lose their life, that they might never get out of the battlefield? Jesus is always up front with his disciples. And I think that's something that's impressive to me in terms of Jesus' gathering disciples around him and when he became very popular even among the common man. But Jesus never shied away from talking to his disciples about the type of life they would have to live if they followed him. He talked about the danger and the hardship. He didn't say, if you follow me, you might suffer. Jesus says, if you follow me, you will suffer. Jesus, sending out the twelve on the limited commission in Matthew chapter 10, said, Behold, I send you out as sheep amidst the wolves. You know, being a sheep is one thing, but being a sheep in the midst of the wolves, that's a whole different thing. And that's what Jesus said. I'm sending you out, not just as sheep, but sheep that are in enormous danger, sheep that people want to eat up. I'm going to send you out among the wolves. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now brother will deliver up brother to death and family his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is recruiting here. He's calling people to serve him, to be disciples, to engage in the cause. And what he tells them is there's not even a sanctuary in your own family. That the nature of the truth in following Christ puts people vulnerable to being betrayed by those that are closest to them. And that if you follow me, you are going to live a life of enormous hardship. And so what's Paul say here? He says, you must be a soldier that's willing to endure the hardship. Follow my example. And if we're correct in terms of the writing of 2 Timothy chapter 2, that this book was written by Paul to Timothy while Paul was in jail in Rome. Some of the very last words of his life. Now he would get released, history tells us seemingly, that he got released from this imprisonment and he didn't die for a little while after that during a second Roman imprisonment. But Paul is suffering when he pins these very words. And he tells Timothy, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you must suffer. Paul's life had been filled with those type of hardships. So he could place himself before, the, before Timothy as an example, as one to be mentored. And certainly we looked at that when we looked at the passages as we continue to look in Philippians chapter 4. But the word he used to describe the life of a soldier is the word hardship. In the original language, it's a word that means generally to suffer evil. 
Paul uses it twice in 2 Timothy. In chapter 2, verse 9, he talks about suffering trouble as an evildoer. And so he says it's possible to have hardship for doing what's wrong. And then in verse four, verse five, chapter 4, verse 5, he talks about enduring afflictions as the King James translation, New King James translates that particular word. So it means to suffer, to have a hard time. It generally points to the aspect of physical suffering. And so what Paul calls on Timothy to endure in terms of hardship is not just the aspect of bad circumstances. It's not simple misfortune. It's one thing to, it's one thing to tell someone to endure something that they can't do anything about. Just stick in there and hang in there because you can't really do anything about this. It's another thing to cause, call a person to suffer for a cause. That what you're going to suffer is going to come as a result of decisions that you're getting ready to make and that you will continue to make. And so when Paul talks about hardship, affliction, suffering, of a soldier, he's talking about, you see, suffering for a cause. Being brought into a position where you, through, through, through your own conscious decision, decide that this is the life that you're going to live. And when a soldier stands up and takes the oath that pledges him into service, he pledges allegiance to a cause. To protect his country, to uphold his constitution, to look out for his brothers and his sisters in arms. And so the aspect of suffering, as Paul addresses it here in the life of the Christian, has to do with an understanding of allegiance, an understanding of purpose that's behind it. But Paul also says in here that in this, in this context, you share with me in this. The verb endure or suffer here, the verb itself, is a compound word that includes the preposition S-U-N, soon, which means with. So Timothy is called to suffer with someone else. The New International Version says with us. The, Interna- the, the English Standard Version says share with us. Uh, and the American Standard Version even takes a more personal approach where Paul says that you should suffer with me. So it's implied that Paul's talking about his own suffering. That makes sense since we just mentioned the aspect that he's in prison and certainly has been, uh, has been uh, experienced much suffering over his lifetime with Christ. But what it presents to us in the context of the responsibility that God places before us, that we are to live the life of a soldier that includes hardship, is that we do not do this alone. We don't join to fight alone. We don't join the cause to fight for the cause alone. But we join others for the process of fighting for the cause. So it's an allegiance, but it's an allegiance we share. It's a perspective that we share. It's a cause that we share. And as well, because of that, we will share in the suffering. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul earlier said, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. That was an important perspective from which that Paul needed to present to Timothy here in the stage of life that he was in and where he was in, was that I'm calling you to be to serve God with me, but understand where I'm at. And that if you choose this, this is what's going to come. Paul was no doubt older than Timothy, and Timothy could look at Paul's life and say, well, if I'm going to follow him, then I'm going to get what he's got. And so there may have been some hesitancy and certainly some reluctance in the aspect of following in the pathway of someone who found himself in prison impending on his death that he'd made the choices that brought him to that point, and now he's calling on me to follow in that. So the bad news was that Timothy was going to suffer persecution for the cause if he took up the pledge. But the good news was that he would not be alone in this, that he would share in those sufferings, that others who had gone before him had endured and continued to endure. 
And certainly that goes all the way back in all this aspect of serving God since the very beginning. The right of Hebrews makes clear evidence that faith is based upon the willingness to suffer. That faith can accomplish great things and shut the lion's mouth. and It can subdue kingdoms, but also those who suffer for God because of their faith are sauna too. And they have all types of persecutions that come their way, even death itself. So to be a Christian means to share in the suffering with other Christians. But what did that mean? How would Timothy actually make application of that admonition to share with me? I would suggest Paul wasn't saying, come down here and check into the prison with me and join me in my cell. So what did he mean when he told Timothy to share in the suffering? Well, exactly what it says in this passage. He wanted Timothy to hang in there, to endure. Because even though there may be no sufferings at this particular time, if you do hang in there and you stay with God, there will be suffering, and then you'll be called upon to endure it. The other aspect of that, the flip side of that, is someone who would begin to suffer for the cause of Christ and then abandon the cause, who would desert, who would go the other way. So when Paul says you endure the hardship of a soldier, he's talking about commitment to the cause, to endure, to not quit, he calls on Timothy to not be afraid in chapter 1 and verse 7, but to trust in the power of God and make deliberate choices to endure. Though it would be easy for this young evangelist to shy away from mistreatment, to disassociate some himself from his apostle, even the one who had taught him the truth, Paul warns him, don't be ashamed of me, nor of me the prisoner, when you look at life. There's a whole venue for, the, for so-called gospel preaching out there that presents the life of the Christian as this rose-covered path that you travel and that if you follow Jesus and you give Him your heart, that He'll, make, he'll, tur- he'll turn on your problems upside down. And if you follow Him, He'll give you the desires of your heart and that you'll prosper as a result of choosing Christ. That's Satan's approach. That's just the opposite of what the apostles and the other New Testament uh, teachers did in recruiting disciples and Jesus himself. He says, suffer the hardship of a soldier. Now that connects back to Jesus himself. The soldier is not just a soldier a la carte, he's a soldier of Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul presents here. So our willingness to endure the suffering points us back to Christ's hardship. Is it Jesus who suffered first? Is there a real solidarity in my suffering in whatever way that I might do it today as a Christian? Is there a real solidarity that I have with Jesus as He suffered? Peter would say yes. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, he told the Christians of the first century, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. Now Paul, what Peter's saying is that we shouldn't be surprised that we suffer. Well, why not? You know, sometimes I think we fall under that, uh, that thinking today in our society because for so long, you see, American society and the freedoms of American society have provided for a comfortable environment for a Christian to live in. That it's been a good thing to be a Christian. The morals that you uphold, the principles of the Bible you share with others, you have the freedom to exercise that. And so it's been a place where there's not been a lot of hardship to become a Christian. I believe that's changing and we recognize that changing. What Peter would say is that suffering is not something that should be, you see, surprising to us. Why? Not just because of the culture that we live in, whatever it might be, but if you go all the way back and you take your eyes back to where you actually are pledged allegiance to, it has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus suffered. And so Peter says, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. And that's what Jesus told his disciples. They hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted you, they're going to persecute me. And so he says, Endure. Hardships of the soldier. What type of hardships did the good spiritual soldier encounter? What can he expect to experience in the service before God? Well, this, the Apostle mentions one in this context in verse 4. He says that the soldier is to be disengaged from the world around him, the affairs of this life. We're going to put that one off and talk about that more specifically, the Lord willing, tonight and discuss what it means, that the, the hardship of detachment from the world around us. Certainly that's what's in play in this particular verse. But there are other things that are faced by the physical soldier, that, the hardships that are faced by the physical soldier that certainly can be a part of our spiritual experience in fighting for God. Physical soldiers have a difficult emotional task. It's not just all physical strength, though a soldier must go through a training process where he gets himself physically ready to serve and even to fight in the battle. But there's a mental process as well. It's easy to become discouraged when you're dealing with, when you're dealing with fighting and struggling and others oppose you. Is you become discouraged in the face of the, of the struggle because it's constant, because it's severe, because it's not easy, because it demands a different type of lifestyle. So there are times in which, even in the midst of the battle, the soldiers get up and they run the other way. Or they, 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 they lose their ability to fight anymore and they give up in the battle. That's not unheard of in the spiritual perspective. That there are those who made a very strong commitment to God and definitely wanted to serve God, had great faith in God, who in the midst of the battle became discouraged. Men such as Jeremiah and David and Elijah all suffered from that. Have you ever been discouraged from the outcome of the battle when you were trying to do what was right, trying to make decisions that God would have you to do and you met opposition because of that and you felt that maybe it wasn't really worth the trouble I was going to go through, that maybe the hardship was, not, was too much of a price to pay? We think about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 after the convincing victory on Mount Carmel when seemingly you see there was that the prophet of God had the upper hand and that they were 450 prophets of Baal that were his constant enemies before that now were dead because God was willing to exercise discipline upon them. We find Elijah under the juniper tree in 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, he says, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your idols, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left and they seek to take my life. What did I say? I'm the only one left here. I'm the only one on the battlefield. Everybody else is deserted. There's nobody else to fight this battle. Now, Elijah had it wrong. God came and comforted the prophet. And I think there's certainly a lesson in that for us. That God was willing to comfort rather than rebuke strongly Elijah. And that another point along those lines is that the comfort that Elijah would receive from the Lord, in essence, was in some ways, addressing his feelings. Now, God wanted him to see, and God did have him see, the objective truth, that his feelings were not an accurate guide to what what was actually going on. But God cared about what Elijah felt. And so he tells him, your work's not finished yet. You need to go and return. And you need to anoint Ahaz. You need to, you need to put, put the, uh, Elisha in place, and uh, your successor. And you need to get back to the work that I've given you to do. And then he tells him, you're not alone. There are 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal that you know nothing about. So God's work was continued to going on. What he was 
You see, addressing was the feelings of the soldier in the midst of the battle to say, you are not alone. Feel alone? You know, loneliness is a real problem in our society. And maybe we face that in many ways and even more in, in, in this particular part of the country than other places because generally the population is older and sometimes people have, uh, have left behind loved ones or their aspect of that their life is not populated with the people that it was before and loneliness can overtake them and become discouraging in the process. Paul felt the pain of loneliness near the end of his life. He was abandoned by others. He faced the hardship of prison by himself in many respects. Later in his epistle, chapter 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9, he tells Timothy, Come quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. He goes on to talk about others that had departed from him. Alexander the coppersmith had did him much harm. And he talks about this aspect, you see, that even those you see who were his closest companions were not around anymore. In verse 16 he says, At my first offense no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. And then in verse 17 he says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me. Which I find is a fascinating statement that Paul here is in prison under uh, certainly constant guard. Even if it's house arrest, he's not able to. He's not able to go where he was, where he's able to go before. And still, what's in view is this aspect that he is a soldier enlisted for a cause. So he's thankful to God that God has not abandoned him, that God has strengthened him. For what purpose? So that he can just feel better about himself, so that he can overcome the feelings of loneliness? All of that was, no doubt, part of the experience. But he says, God strengthened me so that I can preach the gospel to other people. Paul still had a mission. There was still a cause. And he goes on to say, the Lord will deliver me from every work. There's still something to be done and God will not abandon me. And so a lack of morale, you see, is certainly a part of that. We can be discouraged by the apathy of others. We can also be discouraged by the success of unrighteousness. There are times when it looks like we're losing the battle. It may seem as though God doesn't care or that God doesn't really know how bad it is. So there are several times in Scripture when we find the saints of God calling upon God to respond. How long will you let this go on? You need to do something about this. Not only in terms of their personal suffering, such as the souls under the altar in Revelation, but as well the aspect of the, the, the fruit of righteousness that seems to be, you see, taking a back seat to the, unright- to the progress and prosperity of unrighteousness. And that's what Asaph, I think, uh, encountered or at least expresses in the, in the 73rd Psalm, and you may be familiar with this, he experienced a loss of morale because what he saw around him was that evil was so prosperous. But as for me, verse Psalm 73, verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He goes on to say in verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. That evil wins seemingly in this world. So what profit is it to be a child of God? But Asaph found courage again, and the whole aspect of this particular psalm, I believe, is that it's a progression from the despondency of the servant of God when he sees the prosperity of evil and says, what is it worth, to the end of the psalm when he recognizes that he was able to find courage when he went back to the sanctuary of God. 
So Asaph goes back to worship and enters into the house of God and begins worshiping God and his confidence is restored in the transcendence and the power of God alone. In verse 22, I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me up by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. He says God strengthens his heart. And gives him a portion forever. And that's the real answer to this aspect of the despondency, the discouragement that comes, the hardship, is that God does not desert his soldiers, that he stays with us. The word discouragement itself in the English language identifies to, to, to extent what's missing here, uh, and that is courage. Every soldier needs courage, needs courage in the face of the battle. Paul's command in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13 has its roots in the, pa- in the passage we're getting ready to study in the, in, in the book of Joshua and at the end of, book of, Deuter- end of Deuteronomy when Moses is setting Joshua in place to be his successor. Moses and God both speak to Joshua and in essence say the same thing and that is be strong and be courageous because the battle is yet to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 13 Paul said watch ye stand fast in the faith Quit ye like men and be strong in the American Standard Version. Quit ye like men is one of those phrases that, you know, maybe perplexes us a little bit. What do you mean, quit like men? Uh, Does God want us to quit, give up? It's just the opposite of that. That English translation actually is better understood to to act bravely as real men. To be courageous. The Revised Standard Version says, Be watchful, stand firm in your faith, be courageous, be strong. Courageous in the moment, because courage is so important in the moment. A person could put on the uniform, he could train and become physically able to do the job, and even emotionally trained to do the job. But if, when the bullets start flying and the battle begins and ensues, if he doesn't have courage in the moment, then he will perish. And our fight with Satan, with evil, is just that way, isn't it? It's easy for us to have the camaraderie and solidarity to stand together when we're together and say, yes, we'll serve the Lord. To stand as Israel did in the giving and the enactment of the covenant and said, we'll do whatever you want to, Lord. But then we get out on the battlefield when we're by ourselves or we have to stand up by ourselves. It's a total different cause. Sometimes it comes into our heart. It's not courageous to take a flying leap out of a plane that's on the ground. I remember I may have told this story before. Brother Lewis Perez was a paratrooper in World War II. Um, and I, I think Lewis had about three different types of service. He was in two branches of the military service. And, um, and there were stories he told about the Vietnam that would make the hair stand up on the back of your head. But he's, he was talking about jumping out of airplanes. And I was questioning the, you know, the real smartness of jumping out of an airplane. He said, well, we weren't, we weren't brave. He said, you know, that when they jump out of the airplane, they say, Geronimo. He says, that's not really what everybody was saying. He said, we were saying, I don't want to go. And they were pushing us out. <laughs> so he said, when you hear Geronimo, it really is, I don't want to go. <laughs> but that's what it meant, you see, to be courageous for the moment, you see, to do it even when you didn't want to do it, even when it was in great danger. What's it take to serve God courageously, to not desert Him? Sometimes it takes more than we see in our individual lives. I remember some time ago listening to Bob Buchanan, who's been preached the gospel all over the world uh, and is, uh, is known for his uh, many travels and taking the gospel to other places, spoke about a young man in Egypt who had been a Muslim his whole life and was arrested 
when he was baptized. In fact, Bob told the story that he wasn't even dry from being baptized in Christ when the authorities showed up and arrested him. Because his father had told him, seeing what was going on in his life and being taught the truth, his father had told him to his face that if you become a Christian, I will have you killed. Now, I don't know if many of us face that. You know, I don't know if many of us face that. He became a Christian. That's courage. But there's also strength from the standpoint of the personal discipline of my life. It's available to every Christian as he submits to the Word of God given by the Spirit of God. It comes through the spiritual growth and progress that takes place within the heart of the individual. To understand God's Word, to perceive what it would call me to do, and then to have the courage to discipline my life so that I become that stronger person. Whether it's the aspect of daily prayer or meditation upon the Word of God to change the course of my life and the aspirations of my life so that the Spirit can influence my life. And that daily grind, so to speak, of the spiritual exercises before me, the no pain, no gain discipline of putting together what God would have us to be in my heart, take courage. The opposite of that is detrimental to Christianity. If we hypocritically call ourselves Christians while living for the world and do nothing to make ourselves spiritually stronger, to prepare ourselves for what's coming and for what is, then we damage the cause. But there's another aspect of the hardship of the Christian, and that is the individual who's wounded in action. Every good soldier, many times, is in the propensity of being in danger of suffering a casualty. And the spiritual wound is much like the physical wound, in the sense that it causes pain. It may hinder your ability to fight back and put you in a disadvantage when the enemy is coming back. If left unattended, that wound might very well be fatal if you don't care for it. But it certainly qualifies as one of the dangers of being a soldier, that you would be wounded. And every good soldier you see suffers casualties. It's not that only the bad soldiers are the ones who get shot, or only the bad soldiers are the ones who get, uh, who get taken prisoner. It would be difficult for us to predict that Peter, the most vocal of all the disciples, would be the one who would first typify among all the disciples what it meant to personally desert Jesus. And yet there he is. At the urging of simply a young girl's perspective of his connection with Jesus Christ, he denied the Lord three times. And there's an alertness to that. We need to be careful about that. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, Therefore let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And there over and over again, there are these good soldiers who are wounded for the cause. Abraham and Moses and David, all of them facing the casualties. Now what we recognize in the spiritual realm is that casualties... The sinfulness of an individual does not have to be fatal. And that we can fight not only against the fact that we would get wounded, take up the shield of faith and protect ourselves, who can quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, but even if we are wounded, there is the ability of the blood of Jesus Christ to heal us. Is it fatal wound? Is this something that will cause us to lose our soul? Or will we get back up and will we fight again? Now we don't cure the spiritual wounds we have through our own determinants to do the to, to do the work of God, that we don't suffer through it through our own gumption. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that takes the only thing that takes away the guilt of sin and the only thing that takes away the punishment and the wrath of God in relationship to that sin. So I have to put my trust in Jesus Christ. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. There is a sin that through the repentance of my uh, the repentance that comes from my own heart does not kill me. Another hardship is this aspect of fallen comrades. The hardest moment in a soldier's life is not when he necessarily gets shot himself, but when he sees his comrades 
His fellow soldiers fall by His side. Maybe some of you have even experienced that. That when you go out on a battlefield, you recognize it's very possible that the person standing behind, beside you may never come back. And sometimes soldiers that survive in the midst of others that do not survive become bitter against the cause. They rail against not only why they were there or what they were fighting for because it took the life of those that they love so dearly. In the spiritual sense, who among us does not know those who have come to the cause and put on the uniform, so to speak, to serve God, but now they are nowhere to be found. They have abandoned never to return. And that's a hardship. Something sometimes is difficult for us to face. A couple of things in connection to that. We need to take God's Word seriously. It's possible for the Christian to be lost. The very fact that you see that we are fighting for a cause indicates that, and that there are hardships to this cause that it's possible for us to fall away so as to be lost. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, if after they have escaped the pollution to the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Hebrews chapter 10. Paul, the writer of Hebrews says, for we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain expect, fearful expectation of judgment and the fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. What the writer of Hebrews would say is that there's a price to pay for those who go back to sin. Peter would say it's almost an irrecoverable course that an individual would fall away and not be able to come back. When we go into the battle, we have to recognize that danger. And so we have to prepare ourselves, one another, for the battle of the head, to strengthen ourselves. In the verses preceding in Hebrews chapter 10, the clear warning against going back. The Apostle says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Now that's more than just a command to assemble. It is an admonition and an encouragement to prepare ourselves for the battle, to strengthen ourselves, because we need, you see, each other. Fourth verse of Soldiers of Christ Arise. We just sang that song a few moments ago. It goes like this. Leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Take every virtue and every grace and fortify the whole. And then lastly, we need to leave no comrade behind. If it truly is a hardship on us to see those who engage in the battle and then fall never to return, then certainly the commitment we need to make is that we would leave no one behind. In physical military service, this is one of the strongest commitments of the soldier. That no man is left behind. If there is a, a soldier laying on the battlefield wounded, even if he seemingly has already been fatally wounded, the commitment of the soldier is to bring him back. Who among us is worthy to be rescued among those who have fallen away? Now what it does for, that, for us, and what we recognize that if you're going to go back on the battlefield and you're going to pick up somebody who's fallen down, then you put yourself in great danger. You make yourself vulnerable. But it's a matter of duty to do that as well. We are brothers and therefore must always be willing to go back and to try to rescue those who have fallen. Galatians chapter 6, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We have a great responsibility. It's not easy being a soldier. The reason it's not easy is not just because this aspect of where you go and what you engage in. 
But it's not easy because it necessarily implies a pledge of allegiance. It necessarily implies a commitment that's of the greatest importance. It is a matter of life and death. Tonight, the Lord willing, we're going to talk about the soldier from the picture of commitment. Paul says that the soldier must be unentangled from the affairs of his life. What's that mean, and how do we apply that to our own soul, to our own life as soldiers? Well, hopefully, we'll be able to talk a little bit about that this evening. But what does it take to be a good soldier, a soldier, spiritual soldier? I believe that in the context of what Paul tells Timothy here, there's a prominent answer. There may be certainly more than one answer to that question, but the prominent answer in the context here is that a good soldier does not give up. He involves himself in a life of hardship and suffering, but he's dedicated to the cause and therefore he endures it. He is confident in his commander. He's assured of the victory and therefore, you see, he fights on. So that Paul, even in the latter years of his life, could say, I have fought the good fight of faith. That he had fought for God all the way to the end. Have you joined the cause? There's a lot to be said for joining in the cause of freedom and serving in defense and protection of a country that's as great as ours. There's a lot to be said for those who continue to do that who've done that in the past. They deserve honor. But there is a higher cause than the freedom of our own country. There's a higher cause than the democracy under which we live. There is a cause of the spiritual freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. To lose our freedom as Americans would be a great tragedy and provide for us, you see, a whole different life. A life void of the blessings that you and I enjoy in this world today as Americans. But to lose the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. To lose the blessings of God that come to all of us through Jesus Christ. That is the greatest tragedy of all. And sin has that propensity. We must fight against it. God calls us, you see, out of a defeated world of sin and sinful conduct and says, in essence, come and be my people and I will be your God. That was the call of Acts chapter 2 when the gospel was preached for the first time that life had been given on behalf of the nation of Israel and the spiritual nation of Israel and that they were to come and join the cause. And as many of us heard the word, were baptized. Were you willing to be in the cause of Christ, a soldier of God, by repenting of your sins and being baptized? We'd like to help you do that. Let's stand and sing.